You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to, to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a few on the back table that I want to give to you. Those are our gifts to you. Um, but it would be really good for you to have the Scripture in front of you so that you know I'm not just making all this stuff up. Right? The word that we've used to sum up this sermon series that we've been preaching on since uh, September and we'll go for another, oh, about five weeks, uh, is, is a word that occurs 35 times in the, the, this book of Ecclesiastes. This is the term meaningless. In the, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, it's translated vanity, but it's the, same, it's the same word. Now, when we use that word, right, in our context, when we think of something as meaningless, we think of it as pointless or, or useless or, or bad. Uh, that isn't what our author means here. The word in, in the Hebrew, and Hebrew is the, the language that this book was originally written in, uh, the word in Hebrew is a word that describes um, a breath, something that is, that is insubstantial. Um, in other words, it, it's something that makes promises but can't deliver, much like when you go outside on a cold day, right? And you, you breathe and, and it's, you see something, something, you'll probably notice this tomorrow when we get another foot of snow. And it's like, you breathe and it's like out there and you go to grab it and there's nothing, right? That's, that's what the word means. And this week we come to what, if you've been here for a while and you've, you've been up to this point, you know, is one of the periodic summaries our author does. He, he's talking about different um, things, different, different attitudes, different things. He's looking to find a, a place to put his hopes in. And as he mentions them, every once in a while, he just kind of sums it all up. So he comes to a point of frustration. All these multiple aspects of life, multiple candidates for what might be able to hold his hopes in life, uh, he'll eventually stop and sum it up all. And this morning, he does that by showing that life itself is meaningless. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 or in your order of worship, I'd invite you to stand, as is our habit here, in, in honor of God's Word as we stand under the preaching of the Word. We're going to be reading chapter 9, verses 7 to 12. This is the Word of God. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already proved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head, and enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your meaningless life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, 
Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is God's Word. It's given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, that is exactly what we need this morning. We need to flourish. You designed us to flourish in relationship with You, reconciled with You. But we we cannot accomplish that. So we pray that You would come by Your Spirit, and that You would preach Your Gospel to us, that Your words would drive deep into our hearts, and that we would, um, by some miracle, go deeper in our faith and repentance in You. Whether that is for the first time this morning or uh, for the first time in the last ten minutes. We need You. And so, Lord, let, let Christ and His cross come forward. Let the One who speaks fall to the wayside. Lord, because you are the one who not only can save, but is to receive all glory. And so we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. As some of you know, I have four young children, which means that I am well acquainted and will be so more, I would imagine, as my kids become teenagers, uh, with the notion that certain seemingly small things can actually make the world end. I mean, you know what I mean, right? It, it's, for my kids, it's things like not getting time on the Xbox or not getting to go over to someone's house or something like that. And apparently what I'm learning is that there's something that happens, perhaps it's at the atomic or even the quantum level, uh, that when these disappointments happen, all of life for the one that's disappointed suddenly ceases. It is a cosmic event, right? Now, of course... Adults have no idea what this is like. Uh, We we have no experience of packing events in our lives with expectations such that when they inevitably burst from the weight, we are prone to declaring that nothing else matters, right? Let's be honest. That is exactly what's going on in this passage this morning. But we need to be careful lest we think that the, the humorous anecdote that's meant to kind of draw us into what's about to be said, kind of makes this whole thing a joke. The reality is is that what he speaks of here is what happens when we realize that life cannot deliver on our greatest hopes. When we realize that it is meaningless. This morning we're going to look at this in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at the enjoyment of life. It's a good thing, right? And we're going to look at the problem of life. And then finally we're going to look at life's true source. We're going to look at its, its enjoyment its problem, and its true source. Okay? Let's begin with the enjoyment of life. Look down at verses 7 to 10. The teacher here has three very distinct categories in which he's trying to draw our attention to, right? Uh, The first of them is pleasure. Verse 7 talks about your typical uh, kind of the the eat, drink, and be merry perspective. Okay? Most of us are probably kind of familiar with that. Uh, We'll get to the second part of that verse in a second. But then he mentions this thing about wearing white and putting oil on your head. And let's be honest, that just sounds just plain weird. Um, But here's what he's talking about. When we hear dressing in white, when we think white, we think purity, right? That's that's often what we think. And a lot of times in the scriptures, the the color white can mean purity. But at other times, it also uh, lent itself to meaning things like um, a a high social standing or even joy. Um, it, It means festivity in a lot of ways. And so these two things, wearing white and having oil on your head, are about living well. They're about living well. Because when you live in a desert, 
Wearing white clothes and having lots of moisturizer is a really good thing, okay? So this is about living well. It's, it's about joy. They mean joy. Now let's get to the second part of verse 7 where he says that God has already approved what you do. Now, scholars are a little split on exactly what this means, so let me give you what, what I think is probably the best of the thoughts there. Remember, as, as we come to this, and for those of you who are new visiting with us, this, this may be new to you, so, uh, but remember that this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, is written from an entirely secular perspective. It is written from the perspective of someone who's saying, okay, I'm, I've got, and, and, and the way that we're not told who the author is, but it's meant to imply that the author is someone who is very rich, very smart, and very powerful. And so he's saying, I have all of the means, all of the ability to find out if there is something in life that can hold the weight of my hopes, that can make life good, that can make me right apart from an ultimate personal God. And that's the search that he sets out on. Okay? So this is not, um, in, until the last, you know, until the end of chapter 12, this is not exactly what we would call a theological treatise, uh, except by the, the process of negativity, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to try everything else, and eventually it, it, it's not going to work. Uh, and so this phrase, that God has already approved what you do, is a little out of place, right? But given the total context of this passage... And the frustration that we're going to come to from our, our teacher, our author, a little later, what is probably going on here is a kind of fatalism. Okay? Uh, I, I talked about fatalism in the, the Engage Holy Cross uh, class I, I taught a little while ago. But basically, uh, you, you know what fatalism, right? That uh, idea that, uh, you know, que sera, sera. You know, whatever will be, will be, and I can't do anything about it. Like, my choices don't matter. And so what, what he's saying, it sounds an awful lot like, look, if you're able to do it, then God's given his blanket approval of it, so you might as well go and enjoy it anyway. Right? What he doesn't mean, or at least what the total um, context of the scriptures would deny, is the idea that God is happy with whatever you do. Okay? Remember that his purpose is trying to find something to hold his hopes apart from God. And so he talks about enjoying pleasure. And then he talks about enjoying relationship. Look down at verse 9. He says, enjoy life with your wife, whom you love. Now, that's straightforward enough, right? I don't think we really have to dig into that really deep. But, but what is interesting is what he continues with. Enjoy this relationship, he says, all the days of your meaningless life. Because this is your portion, right? And that word portion um, means reward, right? In, in the original language, it means reward. Like, this is your reward, and so what he's saying is enjoy this because it's the best you can hope for. The best you can hope for. And then he talks about all the toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, that word toil occurs 16 times in the Old Testament and 13 of those times are in this book. So this, this is something that he is very familiar with, this, this idea of toil. It means burdensome labor or labor that is done in vain. Labor that can't actually accomplish what you hope it's going to accomplish. So keep that in mind as, as we go to the last thing, and then I'm going to sum it up. So hold that, hold that thought for a second. And then finally, in verse 10, he says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, I have heard people try and apply this verse to a biblical view of work. I, I've also heard people try to apply it to a biblical view of uh, disciplining your children. Um, but... Uh, it isn't exactly talking about work or vocation or disciplining children. Uh, it, you could apply it to that, but the overall scope isn't positive. It's not positive. What he's saying here is not positive. What he's saying is basically this. Do what you can now. 
What you can do, you might as well go and do it. Well, why? Because you can't do it in death. That's his whole point. Okay, now let me tie these things together. Pleasure, relationships, and opportunity. Okay? Basically, our teacher here is saying, enjoy these things while you can, because death is coming. And it is casting a shadow over everything. It's casting a shadow over everything he's talking about here. And it is the reason that he can call life meaningless. That he can call what we do toil, labor that is in vain, that will not accomplish what we hope. And so when he speaks about all the toil that you do under the sun, we need to understand that is the only perspective that he is entertaining throughout this entire book. When he says the phrase under the sun, he means the totality of human possibility. This life. This life. Your days of life, when he says that, it is everything. Because if there is no God, then what happens between cradle and grave is everything. It is everything. And some of you here this morning, you agree with that statement, right? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's everything. What our teacher would say to you, the the writer of this book, what he would say to you, what he is saying to you, is get what you can out of life. But it cannot hold your hopes. Death will still come. Now, before we move on with the text, this little bit here raises an interesting issue of enjoyment that I want us to clarify. Because he talks about enjoying life. And, and there are at least four perspectives on enjoyment. There's probably more, but I, I just chose four that, that I want to name and describe for us. The first is the hedonist, right? That, that is the perspective that enjoyment is everything. Enjoyment is everything. You just go. And that is the very thing that our teacher is seeking to de- de- deconstruct here. If enjoyment is everything, just know that death is coming. And it's, ultimately, that enjoyment is not going to get you anything. That's his whole point. It will eventually end. The second perspective on on enjoyment is something that we'll call the Gnostic view. Um, If that name is a stumbling block, don't worry about it. It it does mean something, but we're not going to talk entirely about what the name points to. But the unfortunate thing about the Gnostic view of enjoyment is that many people think it's Christian. Okay, The, The Gnostic view is the view that sees creation as a whole as bad. And so enjoyment of the creation is bad or selfish. Or somehow less than spiritual. And so, uh, this view understands that pleasure and enjoyment can't fill you, so they reject it as outright, just, it's just bad, it's wrong. Don't do it. Don't enjoy. The third, uh, third perspective is more Eastern in its outlook. It's kind of common to Buddhism. Uh, this is the notion that enjoyment will eventually end, which is correct. Uh, but because it will end... Um, Thus, attachment to things, including enjoyment, should be avoided. Right? Why? Because when things end, it creates suffering. It hurts. Right? It hurts. And so we should seek to escape that. So whereas the Gnostic perspective sees enjoyment as bad, this one sees it as eventually painful, and so seeks to avoid the pain through avoiding enjoyment. Right? Some of you lean that way. And the fourth one is the perspective of our teacher here, and that is that enjoyment is a distraction. This guy sees death for what it is, a reality that makes everything futile. It eventually negates everything. And so his whole point here, he presents enjoyment 
not as a way to, to either conquer that or as a way to uh, kind of reject that. He sees it as a way to simply stay blissfully ignorant of the fact that death is coming and everything is going away. In other words, get what you can, take what you can get, and, and try to ignore reality. Which brings the question, what exactly brings someone to this? That the best you can hope for is just distraction. Maybe you're here, though, right? Maybe, maybe you're at a place where life is at its best a, a distraction from what you see as reality. You just, I just need to get past today. Clearly, our teacher here has become disillusioned with something. And what it is is the problem of life, right? Look down at verses 11 and 12, see where this comes from. The theme of verse 11 is simply this. What should happen doesn't happen, right? You see that? The swift should win the race. The strong should win the fight. Material prosperity should come to the smart and the wise, but it doesn't. He says, time and chance happen to them all. Now, some of us are, are like bucking up against this right now, right? For, for others of us, this is giving voice to our frustration. Some of us are like, no, that, that can't be. I'm, I'm in control of things. And others were like, yeah, because I've done it all right. And nothing works, right? Our teacher is once again, as he has done many times before, raging at his lack of control. Time and chance. Look, in a world without a personal God, in a world without a personal ultimate God, that is what governs things. It is random, it is purposeless, and it creates futility. And that brings us to verse 12. Look there, he says this. For man doesn't know what his time is. What time is he talking about? He's talking about death. Right? And then the two images he uses are a fish and a bird. And both are going along their merry way, doing their thing, not thinking anything. And all of a sudden, the fish gets caught in a net and the bird gets caught in a snare. In other words, they're dead. They're food. Like That's what happens. His point is this. Death comes. And you don't know when. You might think you can keep it at bay, but you can't. Listen to me. You may believe that you're right living. Very good, upstanding, moral living. Or your healthy lifestyle, or your wise money management, or your, you know, whatever, will make things different for you. But it won't. It won't. Everything that he spoke of in the first few verses were things that he expected others would see as good. Relationships, pleasure, opportunity, but death marginalizes them. It marginalizes them because they have to end. You and I know, just like our teacher in this, that something is not right in the world. Something is not right with us. And we try, we, we try and find something to make things right, but no matter their promise, they can't deliver. And the ultimate message here is enjoy what you can, but don't think that it's actually going to do anything for you because ultimately it's going to end and you will die. Your pleasure, momentary. Your relationships, temporary. Your experiences, fading at best. At best, they can distract you from reality, but even then, they end and reality stares you in the face. These things may be good, but they can't be ultimate. 
Let's take a look at that, shall we? Look, let's look at what happens when you take something that's good and make it ultimate. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible tells us that God made the world and called it good. Everything, us included. He created everything and he called it good. And we were made for God. That's, that's a point that we can't overstate. We were made for him, not the other way around. I, I know we like to see it the other way around. He's there for us. It's like our little genie. What do you need? You know, but we were made for him. We were made to draw our identity, our meaning, and our life from relationship with him. In other words, he was supposed to be ultimate for us. Ultimate. The problem is that we turned from him, betrayed him. And that, that's what the Bible calls sin. It, it, it's not so much the breaking of rules as it is the, a relationship. Um, we wanted to find all of those things apart from him, and so we turned and betrayed him. And when we did, a couple of things happened. Some of them you're familiar with, maybe the other one you're not so much. The first is that we became guilty of that betrayal. And we became guilty of everyone's sense, right? We betrayed a person who loved us, a, a person who created us to be in loving relationship with him. We, we betrayed him, and the weight of that betrayal, the, the, the weight of that guilt, the Bible calls death. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death, right? Hell, judgment. That's the one that we're probably more familiar with. The second, though, is that we aren't just guilty, but corrupted. Now, what I mean by that is that we are now stuck trying to find those things. Life, uh, meaning, identity. We are stuck trying to find those things apart from him by our very nature. In other words, the Bible says that we as people are now sinners by nature. By nature. Not because we sin do we become sinners. That we are sinners and because of that we then sin. It isn't our behavior that makes us sinners. We are sinners, and that makes our behavior, okay? And this means that, listen to me, if behavior didn't make the problem, then behavior isn't going to fix the problem. If behavior didn't make it, behavior can't fix it. We are stuck. But here's the thing. You and I were made to make something ultimate. Before we betrayed God, before we turned in on ourselves... uh, because of our sin, God filled that spot. But now, we take whatever we can find and use that, right? The Apostle Paul, one of the first Christians, wrote in, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, um, 18 to 23, he says that we exchanged God for created things. We exchanged Him for things that we made, or that He made. Um, we worshipped them, which, look, worship's a churchy word. It doesn't mean singing to them. I know some of you are like, worship. I don't sing to anything, Rick. I, it doesn't mean worship. It means ascribing ultimacy to them. It means making them ultimate. The, the Bible calls that idolatry, and all of us, all of us are guilty of it. Now, for some of us, that, that idol is an actual false god, right? Like, for some of us, it's, it's like, you know, the god of deism, the, the clockmaker who spins things, into, and he doesn't really care what we do. As long as we stay to some extent uh, moral and looking out for the goodness of mankind, right? Uh, Or um, like the pantheism of the kind of pop opera spirituality, right? Or the false god of the demanding dictator of Islam. Uh, For others of us, though, it's something more mundane. It's not a false god like that. It's more like the, the mundane god of money. We'll do whatever we can to get it. Or power. And we will make sure that we are the strongest influential person in the room or uh, or reputation 
will make sure that on the outside people know that we are good. Or sexuality. Look, we have been doing it since the garden. We have been doing it since the garden when we reversed the order of things and put the snake first instead of God. But think about just the things he mentioned, right? Some of us make pleasure ultimate. We look for it to make us feel good, to make life right. And we are always out for the next awesome experience, whether that involves food or sex or fun. But the problem is, and you know this, it ends. Eventually it stops. We order our whole lives around the next experience. We obsess about it. We lie to get it. And then it fades in seconds and it's done. Or what about relationships, right? I mean, some of us look for someone else caring for us or loving us to make things right for us. And we will do whatever we can to keep from being lonely, to be loved, to belong. We will sacrifice our very personhood, our feelings, our dreams, whatever, so that someone won't leave us. Because as long as we're not alone, we're okay. Friends, these are false saviors. They cannot make things right for you because they were never meant to be ultimate. The irony of the book of Ecclesiastes is that the very moment when we make them ultimate, they become meaningless. The very moment in which we place them in a position they were never meant to be, they become meaningless. Pleasure can never truly be enjoyed because we are trying desperately to make it last longer. We're constantly thinking about how we can make it last forever. Relationship can never really happen because we're so terrified of being alone that we'll either go completely unknown or demand that the other person do so. There's no relationship there. And then we crush them under the expectation. Expectation is too weak a word. The demand that they never fail us, never leave us, never make us feel lonely. Friends, these things are good. They are created by God. But they cannot be ultimate. You and I cannot find life apart from the God we were made for. The God who we also betrayed. The problem is because of our sin, we are stuck seeking life everywhere but Him. And we need to be rescued. Friends, uh, That is the problem of life, but God is the source of life, and he didn't leave us hopeless. Listen close, because here's the amazing part of this whole story. God was betrayed. The Bible talks about idolatry, and especially in the Old Testament, when it talks about idolatry, it doesn't talk about it like breaking curfew. You know, like when we think about breaking God's rules, we think about like when, when we didn't come in on time for curfew. Like, what's the big deal? You just picked some time randomly, you know? It talks about it Not like breaking curfew, but like adultery. Like adultery. Betraying God is like cheating on your spouse. But God, though cheated on, promised to rescue us. To reconcile us to himself. Think about that for a minute. Those of you who are married in this room, and maybe those of you who are old enough to understand, to some extent, like the idea of an exclusive relationship, I want you to think about it. He was the one cheated on. And he took the initiative to make things right. Not when that person was sorry, but the Bible says when we were still in bed with our other lovers, he came to us. 
We didn't earn that. That is purely out of what the Bible calls grace. Favor that is completely unmerited and given freely. And that's what he did in Jesus. We weren't looking for God. Listen to me. You were not looking for God. You were not seeking him at all. But he came and he sought us. God always acts first. But because we were the ones who messed it up, one of us had to make it right. But we're all stuck, right? And so in Jesus, God took humanity to himself to rescue us. He lived the life we couldn't, placing God as ultimate in his life so that he was free to love others without needing anything from them. But he also died the death that we deserved. He bore that death, physical and spiritual, that we had earned with our betrayal. But then, and this this is so meaningful when we think about this passage in particular, he rose again from the dead. Like The teacher is like, look, death marginalizes everything. And Jesus said, not anymore, it doesn't. Not anymore. Not for those who are in me. Literally, like uh, the teacher is saying, look, go and do whatever you're going to do. Put your hand to it because it's all toil and vain and da-da-da-da. Literally, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing, talking about the resurrection, and he says, because in the Lord your labor is no longer in vain. The resurrection literally marginalizes death itself, that it's been defeated. And Jesus offers the forgiveness of God place in that, in that resurrection life to all who will come to him in faith. Everyone who will come and look to him to make things right for them. Listen to me. If, if you're not familiar with the message of Christianity, that is the message of Christianity. That is the gospel of the true God. Not go be good, but come be forgiven. Not here's what you do to get back to God, but here's what God has done to bring you back to him. Because you see, the problem is that when it comes to ultimate things, we can't just remove them. It's not like you can say, okay, Rick, I see I place pleasure as an ultimate thing. I'm done with that. Right? That's like saying, Rick, you've pointed out that I breathe too fast, therefore I'm done breathing. Like, it, it doesn't happen. You can't. You were made to breathe, right? You were also made to have something ultimate. You can't just remove it. You must replace it. You were made to put your faith in something. And listen, some of you are not Christians in the room, and you're not even, you, you would define it like, I'm not even, Rick, I'm not even religious. I'm not even spiritual. I don't put my faith in anything. Yes, you do. It may just be yourself, but your faith is somewhere. Something will make me right. You were made to put something uh, in that place of being ultimate. And in Jesus, friends, you can once again return to the God you were made for and stop chasing created things. He, was, he is the ultimate that you were made for. Return to him by faith. Look, stop trying to earn it. You can't. Stop, stop trying to find it elsewhere. He offers relationship to you freely. Apart from what you do, come back to him and find rest for your restless heart. Lastly, that brings us to the freedom to live. Look, not even life can hold our hopes. It's like, what else is there? I know, right? Like, not even life can hold our hopes. But when we've returned to God through Jesus, life can be lived without having to serve it to get something from it. Here's what I mean. Remember all those perspectives on enjoyment that I talked about earlier? Four perspectives, right? None of them are Christian. None of them. 
And I know we struggle with that, right? Because some of us think that, wait a minute, what else is there? There's this. God created things good, and they are to be enjoyed with thankfulness, just not worshipped. Just not used to deal with life. Let me say that one again. God did not create things for you to use them to deal with life. If you're in the room this morning and you're like, I have got to have X to be able to get through my day, my week, my month, my relationship with my in-laws, whatever. You are abusing good things that God created to be enjoyed. God did not create things for us to worship them, to use them to deal with life, or for them to be a distraction for us. Here's what I mean. If pleasure is no longer ultimate in your life, then it can be experienced without needing to be a slave to it. Because so long as you are paranoid that it is one day going to end, you will be a slave to making sure that it doesn't. Instead, you can simply enjoy it and give thanks to God for providing it. If relationship isn't ultimate... You do not have to suck the life out of other people to make you feel worth something or to keep you from being lonely. You can simply enjoy other people without demanding that they save you. If your labor, what you do with your hands, isn't ultimate, then your success or failure doesn't define you. But instead, you can simply enjoy what you have to do without it saying anything about you. We are called just to go and do. The results are up to someone else. Literally. Someone else. Do you see that? Trusting in Jesus actually frees you to experience these things freely. Look, enjoyment is not bad. Some of us feel guilty uh, about enjoying things. And some of us are slaves to what we enjoy. Both of those perspectives are refusing to receive God's good gifts with thankfulness. Either being a slave to it or refusing to enjoy it. If our worth, our meaning, our rightness, our hope, our life is found in Christ, then all these things can return to the good things they were meant to be. But so long as we keep them as ultimate, we will always be enslaved to them and unable to get what we want for them. Listen, we were made for God. We betrayed Him. We turned from Him and are stuck trying to derive our life from anything but Him. But in Jesus, God reconciles us to Himself and thus frees us to receive His gifts with thanks because we are not seeking them to make us right. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are a room full of idolaters and our hearts are consistently forming new idols. And unless you come and intervene, Lord, we will be stuck there. And so we ask that you would do that. It is not time and chance that govern the universe, but a good, loving, ultimate person. And so we look to you now and ask that you would come. Those of us in this room, Lord, who have never trusted in you, Jesus, I ask that you would would raise them from their unbelief even now. And those of us in this room who are struggling to keep struggling with the battle of what is going to sit on the throne of our heart, whether you or something that you have made, we, I ask, Lord, that you would kick the created things so far to the curb that we can't find them and take the seat that is yours by right and by love.
And Lord, we ask for the grace and the courage to consistently reject the created things in light of the Creator and then to enjoy them as good gifts from you. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.